Not in the face, Jack. Not in the face. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Deluxe Edition, the show where we love to jump. What the fuck do we do on this show, Casey? We love to dive deep into classic pop culture. I like making Casey wait. I love making Casey wait. Why are you, why are you not saying anything, Casey? What do you want me to say? Holy shit. Now you're swallowing your 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 weed. Welcome to the show. Don't breathe the shit out. Jesus. All right, we're gonna have to make this brief. Casey's gonna be just flying out of this uh out of this podcast. Anyway, my name is Bill Seabold here as always with Mr. Casey Shear. We've got a cool show. We we did a we did an interview. Uh the interview in, in transparency was was done uh what was it, last week? Yeah. And we we talked a little about this interview on our last episode that came out. But Casey, why don't you tell us who we're talking to today? Yeah, so our episode today is with Jack O'Halloran. And uh, actually, the day that we're recording this, September 22nd, uh, Jack made his debut as a professional boxer in the city of Reading, our hometown, my hometown, at the Municipal Stadium. Uh, Jack was a boxer. Then he went into acting. Uh, before he was a boxer, he actually was in the involved with the mob a little bit. We talk about all that in the interview. Jack's got a, a pretty incredible story, man. Yeah. So full transparency. Again, I'm, I'm all about being transparent today. Full transparency. I had no idea he was no anybody else other than Non from Superman too. Like I knew he was in um, Dragnet too. And I remember seeing him in a couple things, but he's got a huge body of work. I had no idea, man. So I was kind of sitting there listening to him. He's like, yeah, I, I could have won an Oscar for that. I was like, what? You, you could have won an Oscar for what? I'm like, I had to, I was just not prepared. I was so prepared to talk to him about nothing but Superman. Cause I know pretty much nothing else, but Superman, but yeah, he schooled me. He was talking about so many conspiracies and things like that, that I've never heard of. And when you said to him, all right, Jack. So where's uh where's Hoffa buried? He goes, I know where he's buried. I was like, this is crazy. What happened in this interview? <laughs> yeah, if you're into conspiracies, uh, check this one out. I mean, you're gonna really like this. Jack has a lot to say. I mean, there. I feel like we could have our own podcast with just Jack. Yeah, Jack. If you ever do listen to this, you got to start your own podcast, sir. Well, he's got a book out, right? Yeah, he has a book, Family Legacy. Check that out on Amazon. We talk about all that. Uh, he's making a movie, miniseries about that as well. So, yeah, Jack's uh, he's got a lot to say, and uh, we could definitely do a part two, part three, part four with Jack. Hell of a guy. I loved him. I loved every second of it. I, I could sit there and just listen to him forever. Yeah, this is this was a great interview, man. All right. Well, let's roll it. There he is. There he hey, is. Hey, guys. Whoa. Where are you? You're in Hawaii. Hey, man, this is Redondo Beach. You know what I mean? Wow. No, are you? Are you, I, I heard that you're from Philly. Are you still in Philly? No, I'm in Redondo Beach, California. Oh, you're really there. That's not really your background, though. Well, it's what, what it looks like down at the beach, it's, which is a block away. Oh, I was like, wow. Are you, are you really outside? <laughs> I fell for it for a minute. Nope. Just sitting right here at my desk. That's awesome. Well, thanks for joining us. We got a bunch of fan questions for you. Uh, You can probably guess they're mostly uh, around Superman, right? Superman 2, which is something that I'm absolutely obsessed with. So, Is that a movie I did? Yeah, it happens to be a movie you did. (laughs) 
And I was telling Casey too, I was like, he's every time I would watch something in the eighties, you would pop up. And the, my favorite appearance outside of Superman two is something that I think a lot of people forget Dragnet. Great film. We had a lot what of a, fun doing it. You were hysterical in that. Uh, it worked out really well, actually. I had a good time with it. I liked it. Well, talking about Superman. So, so it's, pretty well known that there was some issues on the set. I don't really know too much about what the issues were, but I guess a lot of people weren't agreeing, you know, Donner and Lester came in and, and uh, the, am I saying the Salkin brothers, right? Well, you know, you knew something was wrong when Lester showed up and, and then, you, then you find out after digging into it that they owed him a picture. So they got him on the cheap and, they didn't want to pay Donner, and that, that was the biggest mistake they ever made because we had already shot most of two, and Lester had to, for him to put his name up as director, he had to shoot over 50% of the movie, so he went back and reshot some stuff. And the film, if you ever watched the Donner cut, it's a much better film. Uh, what I never understood really was if the first movie did well, and they already liked Donner because they liked the Omen. They liked the work that he had done. Why did they suddenly say, we have to get rid of him now midstream? I mean, that's well, kind let of a me strange ask you move. This question. Why did they cut Brando out of two? Ah, I don't know. Him. They already paid him to do the movie, but they cut him out because they didn't want to pay him the points. Got it. Okay, right. Because they used footage, I guess, from what they had shot for part one. So that was well, probably they, okay. There was Brando's not into. They cut him out. The woman, what's her face? The, the mother. Was to, did the movie and and then when you see the Donner cut, Brando's all through it. Right, right, right. I I thought he he, he appeared as a as a spirit, but I I guess that's not true. I'm, I'm blending the movies. It's uh, if you look at the Donner cut, you see Brando all the time. But in Superman two with Lester, they cut him out because they they didn't want to pay the points to him. The same as they didn't want to pay Donner and Donner Donner lived eating. I mean, let me tell you something. Christopher Reeve, there will never be another Superman like him. And that's because of Richard Donner. Richard Donner got a performance out of that kid that nobody else would have got. And he never had another great performance like that again. Yeah. How does Richard Donner work then? How does he pull good performances out? He's just a great director. I mean, when, when, when Chris came on to do Superman, he had never done anything before. But he was a Juilliard graduate. He did a couple soapboxes and a couple plays, but he had never done a film like this, you know. So, uh, and he was only like 170 pounds soaking wet. <laughs> and when they went to work him out, and, uh, what's his name? Uh, oh, God, the guy that did Darth Vader. Oh, geez. David Prowse. David Prowse. David uh, was a bodybuilder. And I said to David, you don't want to pump this kid. You want to build him like Steve Reeves did for Mr. America. You want to chisel him because he's got a big ego and, and he's not going to want to wear anything underneath that costume. You want to give him definition. So they put 20 pounds on him of defined muscle and he looked terrific. It worked out very, very well. But it gave him the confidence. He wasn't all bulked up. You know, he just looked the way he should have looked. You said he had an ego. I know that there's a, it's, it's pretty famous now. I guess the internet, you know, let everything out of the bag that, you know, you and, and Chris Reeves had a, had a fight. And, you know, everybody's taking that so out of proportion. You work with people for three years, you know, you're like a family. So 
there was a friend of mine owned an Italian restaurant in London. It was one of the Italian restaurants. It's one of the paparazzi called the San Lorenzo on Beecher Place. And that guy's a real dear friend. In fact, I used to eat my dinner every night because I lived right down the street. Oh, geez. Hold on one second, guys. I got to take my wife. Sissy, I'm doing a podcast. Are you okay? Oh, shoot. Well, I'm, I'm doing a podcast, and then I will. Okay. All right. Yep. We can be as brief as you need to be, Jack. No, no. It's my, your wife. You got to take your wife or she doesn't know. She, <laughs> but maybe she was out buying me something interesting, but no. <laughs> wanted me to move the garbage cans while she's out. And that's all. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So, you know, I used to eat dinner out there every night. And, and I talked people into going in to drum up business for these guys, you know. But it became like the paparazzi place. Diane, everybody used to go there. So they were all sitting there having dinner one night. Hackman and, and Christopher and a bunch of the crew and stuff. And Christopher is talking about me. And my father in New York and there's things that he just shouldn't have been talking about. So the owner of the restaurant called me on the phone at home. He said, Jack, he said, how well do you know this Christopher Reeve kid? And I said, well, we work together. I said, you know, other than that, I never met him before. He said, well, he's in here saying things and talking about New York and your dad. And, all, and I don't think he should be talking about it, which is absolutely true. So the next day when I went into work in the morning, I grabbed them and I took them into a room and we had a very serious conversation. And at the end, I told them, I said, you know, kid, next time you mention my name, say Mr. in front. You understand that? And I and left it at that. We walked out into the hallway and then all of a sudden he became Superman. You can't talk to me that way. All kinds of dialogue. So I grabbed him and threw him against the wall. And I was just about to whack him, boy. And Richard Donner jumped up on my ear and he said, not in the face, Jack, not in the face. <laughs> so I started laughing. I dropped him on the floor and I looked at him. I said, boy, I'll tell you, son, you don't know how close you came. And I walked away and that was the end of it. You know, after that, we just, we, we talked, you know, but Chris had a, Chris was, a, uh, you know, some actors walk around as the actor all the time, you know, the character that they're playing which I find kind of foolish, but that's just some people have to do that. They have to do it. You know, he, uh, that's the way he was. I mean, he poor, poor Jimmy Olsen, Mark McClure was a young kid and he went into Mark's room. And Mark was always playing his guitar and he said, Chris, you got to listen to my new song. I went, I'm, I'm doing. And, and he turned around and he said to Mark, talk to me like Jimmy Olsen. You know, don't talk to me like a normal person. I said, well, you know, what the hell kind of bullshit is that? And that broke the kid's heart. You know, he just, so he, he just don't, you don't do things like that. But, he, you know, he was all right. He was just his own worst enemy. And his ego is what got him hurt. You know, he was on a horse and he wasn't wearing the proper equipment for jumping. He should have had a helmet on and some other stuff. And he refused to do that. And when he got thrown, he hit his head flat on. He didn't have any protection or anything. And that's what got him hurt. But the amazing thing was he became a better person after he got hurt. He had more consideration for people. I never had a problem after that with Chris. He was, you know, he did a great job. As You'll never see another Superman Clark Kent performance like that. And and I, I attribute all that to Richard Donner. Richard Donner was just a, 
a great director. And I've worked with some pretty good directors in my life. Dick was a, he was a gasp. And I mean, I, I remember when I, I was doing a picture down in Spain with Gene Hackman. We were doing March or Die. And they flew us up to meet Donner at Pinewood where they offered me the role. And Donner and I sat down and discussed it. And, and the character Nan in the original comics and all was a great scientist that they lobotomized because of his interactions with Zadnall. So as a penal, as a penance, they, they lobotomized him. So he, he said to me, how do you feel about playing this character as a deaf, dumb mute? I said, I embraced that. He said, what? I said, well, Jackie Gleason was a friend of mine who did a picture called Shigo, and he won, he won an Oscar for it, playing a deaf, dumb mute, doing facial expressions. and body. I said, I, I would love to get it. And Nan was a perfect role for that because you had General Zai was a man, was, was a vicious general. Sarah was a man eater. Somebody had to relate to the kids. So I said, I'm going to take this brutish guy and I'm going to play him like he's learning how to work like a child. with child mannerisms, learning how to work his eyes and being agile into Zod and, and all that stuff. And getting with the kid on the side of the truck, burning the hole for the first time when my eyes are working and getting all jumping up in joy with it like a little kid. And it worked pretty well. That actually leads me into a fan question that we have from Robert Butts. Uh, he would like to know, was it harder to have a non-speaking role rather than a speaking role because of only being able to communicate with the facial expressions? No, I, I actually really enjoyed it. I mean, I, it gave me an opportunity to really show what an actor can do. You know, you don't have to talk to make people understand what you're doing or make believers out of who you are and what you are. And, and I thought it worked pretty well. Didn't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You your your character was my favorite by far. I mean, I was well, saying to Casey people, before, like he was just, your character just stood out like yeah. uh, above the others for sure. Yeah. yeah, how many people said that to me? I, I tell you a funny story. I met a first Comic Con I ever did, and somebody come up to me and said, Oh my god, you can actually talk. <laughs> 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 I laughed. I said, you know. Evidently, you haven't seen any of my other movies. You better get back on you know. Speaking of other movies, so I read, and, and Wikipedia is sometimes full of, you know, nonsense, but it said that you were offered but didn't take the Jaws role. Oh, I was, I, I turned down, I think, six movies, and Richard Keel did them all. That was his career. Oh, really? They, they offered me the Jaws role. I was getting, I was doing, I already signed to do March or Die, and, uh, Cubby and his son flew to L.A. to see me. They wanted me to do this movie very badly. And, and I was around the corner at a restaurant with Robert Mitchum on his birthday, getting him shit-faced, you know. <laughs> and, and we were sitting there having a laugh. And he, I said, Robert, I, I got to go around the corner. This guy, Cubby Broccoli from, uh, from, from London, is here. They want me to do this James Bond movie. He said, have you read the script? I said, yeah. He said, do you like the role? I said, no. He said, then the hell with it. Tell him to go to hell. <laughs> so I just went around and said, hey, guys, how you doing? Blah, 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 blah. And I was there. It was probably the shortest interview I ever did. I said, they said, well, we really want you to come and do this movie. And I said, you know, I, but I just signed to do a movie. And, I, and I'm on my way to Spain to do it now. I said, I, I, you have to talk to my agent see what 
if we can work something out. And I left. I just walked out. Said, you know, very nice meeting you. Thanks for coming all the way over here. Um, but I, you know, when I was then, we were doing March or Die, they came up with Superman. Which, so it was a much better deal doing Superman than than the Bond movie. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's just the way that life sort of took you. Took you yeah, in the direction. Yeah, I was a character. I mean, I, the, the, the first mistake I ever made is that I, I was doing King Kong. And we had a break in that six-week break. Well, they went to New York to film the ending, and we had a couple shots to finish our my character, and so I was had an opportunity to sit on the beach for six months or for six weeks. Well, they came to me. Paramount came to do me a, do a picture, uh, Silver Street with Richard Pryor and uh, Gene Wilder, and I should have done it. I should have went to Canada and done the movie. The King Kong was going to let me go, and then when I got done up there, I'd come back and shoot the the last scenes that I had to shoot for Khan and I should have done it. I, you know, was being foolish. You know, the first mistake I ever made in my career was Farewell, My Lovely was a very good movie. Uh, it's just unfortunate that the distributor didn't have the money to really distribute it properly, but it was, a, it was a good film. And Mitchum had made an arrangement with Johnny Carson. The, Johnny Carson wanted to meet me and, and so we met at the Polo Lounge, and he said, you know, if you do my show, I promise you, you'll get nominated for a supporting actor for Farewell, My Lovely. And I sat and thought about it for a minute. I said, you know, your show is live, isn't it? And he said, yeah. I said, uh, I don't think I can do that. He said, he said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you're, I'm going to come on the stage. You're going to ask me about my father. And I'm going to ask you where the men's room's at. He said, you would get up and leave? And I said, well, I don't talk about my father or that part of my life. And he said, well, no, we'll, we'll give you a list of questions that we'll ask you. I said, John, no disrespect. You're the, you're the key investigative reporter on television today. And you have Albert Anastasia's son on your set. And nobody ever talks about Albert. And you're not going to ask me questions about my father. I said, no, I'm not being disrespectful, but I just don't think. And Mitchum screamed at me. Are you crazy? He said, this is Hollywood, man. He said, they love all that stuff. What's the matter with you? And I said, you, you big mouth. You told Johnny Carson, because Mitchum and I became very close. He knew a lot about me. I said, you told him all. He said, Jack, what's the matter with you, man? He said, so I blew probably an Oscar nomination just by, because I never, did publicity and stuff the way, you know, I had just come off the streets and I, it was a whole new ball game for me, this whole acting thing. And I didn't realize you had to go around and promote this and promote that. You know, if, if I had done two ads, like in a reporter and another paper, I probably would have gotten nominated. A lot of people told me, why well, we want to, I would have voted for you. What's what, why didn't you push? And I said, and Sylvia Miles got nominated for her role in Farewell, My Love as a supporting actress. It was a very good movie. I don't know if you ever saw it, but if you haven't, you should. No, actually, I will. It's actually a great flick. We had four Oscar winners. Uh, John Alonzo was the cinematographer for Chinatown. Dean Televarius was the set director for Godfather. The makeup guy, Wes Moores, and then a guy that did special effects. All Oscar winners. And that's because of Mitchum. You know, and we had a great cast. Mitchum and John Ireland 
Ira Dean Stanton and Anthony Zerby. And it was a great, it was a hell, and Charlotte Rampling, she was gorgeous. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. I'm glad you brought up King Kong too. King Kong. So uh, I was born in 75. By the time I caught King Kong, it was already in pretty steady rotation <laughs> mid 80s. So I watched it all the time. But I was always, because I was a big fan of monsters as a kid. Did King Kong do well? Was it well received? Or? It actually did well. You know, I tell you, it was sad. We had a great cast. It was a great script. And you had a big producer. It was the biggest movie in Hollywood at the time. It was, uh, But we had a shitty director. You know, he was he was uh, he was drunk all the time, which was very sad. You know, like we went to Kauai to shoot a scene. We were supposed to be there four days. We were there thirty four days, wow. and the scene that we were supposed to shoot there, we shot in Zuma Beach. It was where they laid the fog. You know, we saw Kong when we mm-hmm. came through the fog and found the island. When they were laying that fog, we were supposed to do that in Kauai. But the the wind the, the 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 weather just didn't allow it. The wind was up, and and the, and the locals told John Gellerman, "You'll never get that shot today." And he kept uh, yeah, <laughs> like he was a top sailor or something. You know? And 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 I'll tell you, we worked on a Sunday, right? Now I don't know what you know about the film business, but we're on location on a Sunday, and we worked fifteen straight hours. And never turned the camera over. We had seven meal penalties. You know how much money I made that day? You're talking double golden time. You're on location <laughs> on a Sunday. And and seven meal penalties, one after the other, and never turned the camera over. That was John Gilman. But, you know, that's uh, – Laurentiis uh, knew he made a mistake like halfway through the picture, but – you know, it was just, uh, it was sad because it still turned out to be a pretty good movie, but he almost ruined Jessica Lange's career. He tried to make her too, look, look like Marilyn Monroe too much. And he was chasing her around. He wanted to get, he was, you know, wanted to get next to her, which was never going to happen. And Jesse, that was her first picture. And she, I mean, you knew she was going to be a star the first day I ever worked with. And her and I became really dear friends. And she's a super lady. And she's a very, very talented woman. So you were there for 34 days and never filmed anything? You actually filmed it somewhere else? We were there for 34 days. We filmed a lot of stuff on the beach, you know, landing oh. landing on the beach and stuff like that and walking through the mountain. And we're all that we did those mountain shots where we're looking for, you know, Kong and everything. But we, did, we were supposed to shoot the cloud scene where we come through, you know, the, this fog mm-hmm. and we find the island, yeah? And we wound up shooting at Zuma Beach. What's it like when you're doing a production and, and suddenly everyone's kind of saying, hey, this is going south. This isn't working out at all. But you got to finish the shoot. I mean, I got to figure it's like any job where you start to hate your boss. You all start to talk well, about I mean, the boss. There, there was such camaraderie with all the actors. You knew, you knew the picture had to be decent because it was just too good a picture. And they spent, in other words, Picture should have only cost them like 16, 17 million. It cost them 38 because you have four producers on a set and three of them don't know jack shit. They don't know what they're doing. So every time you make a mistake, if I'm, if I'm going to shoot a shot and I make a mistake and I have to come back and do it again, it costs you four times the amount to do that in, in filming, you know? So a lot of mistakes were, were, were made. And I mean, the monkey itself, was only whole one time at the end of the movie. 
the only time they had the whole monkey together. Other than that, they used an arm or leg. And, and the guy that was dressed in the monkey suit, the uh, stunt guy, well, he did a great job. He was a good kid. But poor Jesse, you know, she when the, the scene where she's sitting in the palm of the ape's hand, and then he brings his finger down, and he's rubbing like the side of her face and stuff like that. Well, the, the string on the hydraulic string on the finger broke and dropped and hit her on the head. Almost, almost knocked her brains out, man. <laughs> well, I mean, what was it made of? Was it a, a, I mean, how do you make a giant gorilla finger? Well, the whole giant was like 40 foot high. It was 40 foot animal. Yeah. You know? And the, the hands are, you imagine if it's a 40 foot hands are pretty big. She sat in the hand like it was, you know, right in the palm of his hand. And Jesse's not a small girl. Yeah, it was a big prop. That was a real big prop. And I didn't really yeah. understand special effects back then. So the whole damn thing looked real to me. Oh, no, it was, it, it, I mean, the, the movie was, was well, it was a lot of it well done. It's just that you didn't have a great director. And that was a sad part. Could have been, it would have been a lot better, but it was, still worked out pretty well. And it did well. You know? I'm always curious about the, <laughs> I love how candid you are, by the way, Jack. Yeah. Three producers standing around, they didn't know shit. I'm always curious about that because I hear story after story about productions getting destroyed by a producer who really doesn't have any, doesn't have a creative bone in his body coming in and saying, look, I'm paying the money. I want to make some creative decisions here. Have you ever well, faced that? When you have a producer's brother or relative or, or a friend that they hire as a producer on the film because they got a budget, you know, and the guy is there and the decision has to be made and he don't make the right decision. And that means you got to come back and do it again. It doesn't work out. So you got to come back and do it. Like when we shot Kong, we, the wall, you know, the big wall that was supposed to be on the Island that was on the back lot of MGM. That lot's no longer there actually, but they had the wall right there. They went downtown and they hired all these people to be the natives, you know, in the village and all you want to see a funny scene. I mean, all these guys come up and they were on set and we're shooting like at, at night and you're supposed to only shoot till 11 o'clock because of the noise in the neighborhood. We, they got away with it for 12, one o'clock in the morning. So we're shooting long days, you know, shooting and they, and they're, they're sitting in their tents and they're all smoking dope and they're all stoned out of their brains, man. <laughs> and, and, and when we got done shooting, they were, there was some of them running down, what, what the hell is the name of the street? Right where, in front of MGM. Running down the street with spears, man, chasing cars. <laughs> you want to see a funny scene? I say, you should have thrown that. <laughs> That's great. Uh, That's true, man. I would say, no, I laugh like I said, wow, look at this. These guys are all whacked out of their brains and they're, they're in costume, you know, in the, in the native costume. Running that, what the heck's the name? It's the main, main drag right there. Oh, God, my brain. I will never see the movie the same again, and I'm just going to have to watch it again to look at the stone natives and just know that, hey. They, all those natives that were in front of that wall, you know, they, they were, yeah, man. Culver yeah, Boulevard, that's what it was. Culver Boulevard with spears in their head. They're chasing a car. I said to the guy, where the hell are they go? They're chasing that car over there. I said, they nuts or what? Wow. I laughed, I laughed like hell. I said, wow. Jeffrey, Jesse, Jeffrey Bergewald was a really good guy. And he said, you can't, Jack, you got to come out and look at this. You ain't going to believe what you're seeing here. He said, look at these clowns. 
That's your wow, man. Jack, this is great. Well, I got to pass it over to Casey. Casey has some fan questions. I don't want to take up too much time or they send me hate mail. So I have some questions of my own too, Jack. Uh, you've mentioned Robert Mitchum a few times. Maybe you could elaborate on this uh, story that I dug up here. Uh, Robert Mitchum said of your role in Farewell, My Lovely, Moose Malloy was one great find on this picture. At least he's a find if we can ever find him again. They hired him for $500 a week. He looked perfect for the part. One time he hit one of the producers. We had seven of them. We called them the Magnificent Seven. Jack was swinging this poor bastard around his head like an Indian war club. I tried to explain to him, the guy can be talked to, Jack. Jack just shook his head and said, Mitch, I was crying too hard. <laughs> what, what happened was that we were, there was a guy named George Pappas, who was one of the producers on the film. And he was a producer. He worked with Elliot Kastner all the time. And they had promised me a car and a couple of things. And, and this guy was at my apartment and he was uh, telling me, well, we're, we're going to get this. We're going to get that. And, and, uh, and then he told me that he was friends with a friend of mine from Rhode Island, Raymond Patriarca. And I said, wait a minute, you know, Raymond? Oh yeah. Should I know Raymond? I said, really? So I picked up the phone because as from where I come from, if you mention somebody's name, I'm going to pick up the phone and find out. You better know. You understand? Yeah. Raymond was the boss of New England and one of the more powerful dons in the country. And he was a dear friend. And so I called him on the phone. We used to call him George on the phone. So no one thought they knew you were talking. So I called him on the phone. I said, George, you, you know this uh, George Pappas guy? And he said, George who? That's all I needed to hear him say. You know, George who? I said, ah, nothing. Now, listen, uh, I don't know whether this movie business and I are going to work out. I said, uh, I'll call you tomorrow. No, you stayed right there. And I hung up and I picked George up and I was going to, th- <laughs> up over my head, I was going to throw him through the picture window in my apartment because he really kind of made me angry. He was, oh my God, oh, please, please, please. And I called Mitchum on the phone. And I called, well, he wasn't home. I told his wife, I said, no, Robert, thanks for everything, but I think it's time for me to go home. But this business and I aren't going to get along too well. And uh, Reva Fredericks, who was Robert's right hand, she ran his office, called me on the phone right away and said, Jack, you cannot leave. You've got to stay there. Robert will walk off the picture if you leave. Because I was doing a great job. And, and he's the one that, you know, wasn't for Robert. When I, they, they brought me out to do a screen test. I had turned down several movies prior to this when I was boxing. I just retired from boxing and they, my agent from San Diego, I did commercials when I was California heavyweight champion, called me on the phone and said, Jack, they, there's a film that they want you to do. And I really think you should consider it. I said, what's that? Farewell, my lovely with Robert Mitchell. And I had just retired from boxing. I owned a couple construction companies. I was standing at a bar shooting pool. And I looked around where I was and I said, you know, maybe it's time I take a shot at this. So they had arranged for me to go to New York and meet the director and do a, um, a director's meet and all. And he and I got on very well. So he sent me out to Hollywood to take a, a screen test at Richard Widmark's house. And Harry Dean Stanton was there doing the, doing the reading with me. 
Mitchum saw the screen test and he said, see, that kid, I don't do the movie. So I always blamed it on Mitchum, <laughs> you know, for me, for me getting in the business. Robert became like a father. Robert was just an amazing. And, and I grabbed Pappas one time and put him up against a trailer outside of Robert's trailer. <laughs> and that's when Robert says to me, Jack, you know, you, you shouldn't, you know, you got, you got to let these guys live a little. <laughs> but, uh, and then Pappas disappeared. We never saw him again. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you're not a you're not one to mess with. I mean, you were a pro boxer, right? You're a fairly large guy, too, right? Just a growing boy. That's <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, let's talk about your boxing career a little bit. You were supposed to. You were scheduled to fight Muhammad Ali four times, but it never happened. Well, you know, they. Uh, I was playing pro football with uh, the Eagles. Well, we were always about to. So it was in that era. If you didn't graduate college, you couldn't play pro ball until your class graduated. Which they should still have that rule because people are playing too young, getting hurt. But anyway, they so I had left school early, and the Jets grabbed me right away, and and I played on a like a semi-pro league that had where a lot of ball players under the same conditions. We were playing, waiting for our time factor to go up into the pros and play, but you were, made an agreement with a professional team. And the Jets wanted me very badly. And then when it was time for me to play, some friends of mine, a lot of friends of mine were playing down in Philly. And I said, you know, and that's where I'm from. I said, you know, I told you, Bank, I said, I, I like to go down. I think I like to go down and play down in Philadelphia. He said, well, you always got a home here, kid. You know, we love you. And, you know, it's up to yourself what you want to do, but you got a home here. So I went down to Philly, and Jerry Wallman had just bought the team. And a super young kid, he was a wealthy, wealthy kid. And he hired Joe Q. Harrick as a coach. And Q. Harrick, I watched this guy trade a championship football team in two months. I mean, he traded Tommy McDonald and Sonny Jergeson for some guy uh, in Washington that was a, a mediocre quarterback. He traded five linemen to Green Bay for a guy who was past his prime date. And he traded linebackers to L.A. for a guy, a running kickoff guy they never got. And we came out of a meeting one day. And Q. Harrick, I was with Timmy Brown, who was a pretty good ball player. And we're walking down the hall, and and Q. Harrick walked right by us. And I looked at him, I said, yo, didn't you say hello to people? And he turned around, and I said, you know what? Take this team and stick it. And Timmy said, "Why you're out of trade me?" <laughs> and they traded him to Baltimore. He was he was a great running back. And Muhammad Ali had just won the title. And I said to some friends of mine in Philly, "I said I could beat that guy." And they said, "You know that's a good idea." So I wound up in, in a gymnasium, but I could never fight amateur. So my first fight was professional. I trained for like five months, and bam! Next thing I know, I'm, I'm boxing, and I. I was like 16 and 0 and they did a was doing a physical for one of the fights and doctor came to me and he said uh, you know I don't know how you're doing this boxing I said what are you talking about he said you you have a disease called acromegaly and I said what the hell is acromegaly he said it's a tumor of the pituitary gland and he said you know like your body would put out 10% worth or more 
hormones, mine was putting out 150%. So it, it like sap makes you depressed and it's a weird, weird, you know, disease. It's very rare. It's mostly a lot of women have it. But anyway, they uh, said, you shouldn't be fighting. I said, yeah, right. And it's my day job. <laughs> I just kept on going, you know, just uh, didn't listen to that at all. And then when I was fighting Norton in uh, California, I went out to fight Norton and the doctor, I stayed there. I, I actually beat the hell out of Norton. They gave him a hometown decision. Was, I could have sat on a stool, actually, in the ninth round. In the ninth round, the, the uh, people were standing on their chairs. It was a great fight. I cut him over both eyes. and People were standing up screaming and yelling so loud they didn't hear the bell ring. So they rang it three times, and finally the referee separated us, and we were in the middle of the ring, and, and I was walking back to my corner. He ran across the ring and hit me behind the head and drove me into the corner post. And Joey Amos, the commissioner, sitting there, jumped up in my corner and said, if you can't continue, you just won the fight on a foul. And, you know, that realized this is Norton's hometown, and he was owned by two millionaires, and they're grooming him to fight Ali. And, there's, and if they can get a Duke, they're going to steal it. So, but I won the town. People were San Diego, they knew who really won the fight. So I stayed there because I had a lot of union. I took the fight on a, on a week's notice. They called me on my house in New Jersey and they said, you want to fight Kenny Norton? I said, when? The guy said, next week. I said, send me a ticket. He said, you'll take the fight. But I had indictments for union problems on the East Coast. So I wanted to get out of town. So. I went to San Diego and I stayed there and I uh, banged out a few guys and, um, and I won the California heavyweight champion, Henry Clark. And uh, yeah, turned a lot of things around. So I spent a lot of time in San Diego. I kind of liked it. Pretty nice, pretty nice place to be. I like how badass you are. You're like, I banged out a few guys and you're just like, like damn, that, that's intense. You knocked out 17 guys. Well, I, I thought I was in San Diego and it was, and they had taken, at the end of the day, they, they took my license for organized crime, which was really a bunch of all rubbish. They were just fishing. So they called me on the phone. They said, from Michigan, they said, you want to fight Alvin Blue Lewis? Alvin Blue Lewis had just went 13 rounds with Ali in Ireland and they were, and he was a pretty good heavyweight and they're looking to make another Ali fight. So he came home and he beat Ernie Terrell and he beat another big fighter. And if he beat me, then they could have an excuse to fight Ali. And they called me on the phone. They said, you want to fight Alvin Blue Lewis? I said, when? I said, next week. I said, send me a ticket. You take the fight? I said, yeah. Can I get a license? Will you give me a license in Michigan? He said, absolutely. No problem. So I went out to, I went out to Michigan and uh, thank God I was running every day, you know, and I, I beat this guy something terrible. He 10 <laughs> out of 10. In fact, he hardly ever fought again afterwards. I mean, he made me mad at the way in. he were. They had a big hoorah at the way, and Billy Jean King was there, a whole bunch of celebrities and stuff. And the guy is interviewing us with a microphone, and, and they put the microphone under Blue Lewis, and they said, "Well, what do you think about this guy you're fighting tonight?" And he said, "Ah, it's another tune-up." And I grabbed the mic and said, "Tune-up? I'm gonna whoop your ass so bad, son!" And his eyes got like big as saucers. And I had a friend of mine in Detroit who ran. Jefferson Boulevard. He was a black kid. He was an Olympic champion. Uh, he was a, um, you know, what a Ronnie Harris, hell of a fighter. And he was partners with Edgeman Lewis, 
who was a pretty good fighter. Edge was from from Detroit as well. And they were street partners. And, and Ronnie Harris, I said to him, listen, I want you to go and bet every round on this fight. On the floor, you bet every round. You hear me? I said, Jack, you're in Detroit. This is his hometown. This guy's ranked number two in the world. Are you crazy? I said, bet every round. I'm going to beat this guy to death. I broke his ribs. I broke his elbow. Oh, my God. I stopped hitting him after the eighth round in the head. And he begged me, fell on top of me. He said, please, knock me out. I said, you're a tough guy. Quit. <laughs> yeah. he, he, he and every time he heard my name after that, he'd hide. <laughs> friends of mine in Detroit said, what the hell did you do to this poor guy? He, he's driving down the street with you. And they heard, hey, there's Jack. He hit him beneath the dashboard. <laughs> But anyway, it was uh, Detroit. That's amazing. They were the days. And after I beat him, I went up to Ali's camp. Because Ali and I were signed. I was supposed to fight Ali in San Diego. And Norton got the fight. Because his people went up to, I was a California heavyweight champion. And Nor- uh, Kenny, I mean, uh, Ali called me on the phone one day. And he said, you got to do me a favor. And I said, I'll do you a favor. Sign a contract. He said, no, no, we're going to do that. He said, but you got to. You're fighting my brother, Rockman, and you got to get him out of boxing. I said, Rockman Ali's your brother? He said, yeah. I said, oh, yeah. I better go in the gym a couple of days. So I knocked his brother out, and he never fought again. And uh, he and I had made an agreement. He was coming to San Diego. and knew the guy that owned the arena. He was a Canadian kid. And we had an agreement with Ali. And then he called me on the phone one day, and he said, you know, I, I don't know how to tell you this, but uh, – I have to fight Norton because Norton's people went to Chicago and gave a few million dollars to uh, Herbert Muhammad and uh, Ali Fort Norton. And he, when he came down to San Diego to fight him, he had a bruised knuckle in his right hand. He had a boot cast on his ankle. And uh, I don't think he was in the greatest of shape. But Muhammad was such a great fighter. And Norton got lucky because in the, I think it was like the third round, Ali had had a tooth taken out of his mouth the week before the fight. And Norton hit him with a fluky overhand right and cracked the tooth next to it. And it split all the way down and the root was wrapped around his jawbone. And it split all the way down and broke his jaw. And he fought the whole fight with a broken jaw. He was sitting on a stool like in the sixth round and his face was starting to swell bad. Freddie Pacheco said, you know, Al, Muhammad, I think we should stop this fight. He said, you don't stop nothing. And he fought the whole fight that way, and he lost a decision to Norton in uh, San Diego. And I took him to the hospital. My doctor set up to get his face looked at and fixed. You know, and uh, he and I became really good friends. And I went up to see him in the hospital one day, and he had a big heavy bag in his room. I said, what the hell is that? He said, you got to stick around for this. And he said, don't go nowhere. Guess who's coming to see me? So Norton came in. <laughs> Norton came in the room and he saw me. He was scared of me. He would never want to, he never wanted to fight me again. Every time I saw him, he would duck and die. <laughs> and he's coming in to see Ali and, and how he's doing. And Ali said, see that bag there? He said, yeah. He said, that's yours. I bought that for you. Take it home and practice because we're going to see each other real soon. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure you're in shape. <laughs> and then he beat him with New York. So, Muhammad was a, he was just a great athlete. I mean, he would have, 
he'd have been great in any sport that he tried. He was just a, an amazing. And when you ever sat with him one-on-one, he was, the, he was very sharp, very smart. He was a clever guy. I, I liked him a lot, actually. And when I beat Alvin Blue Lewis, I went right up to the camp in Pennsylvania. And uh, he said, you beat that kid in Detroit? I said, yeah, man. I said, now, how about you and I sign a document? And he said, well, yeah, we got, I got an obligation. I said, well, so we went. They had all kind of press people there. And we said, come on, come with me. And we went into uh, like a, a locker room too, and closed the door. And, and he said, watch this, Jack. And he's kicking the door and punching it. And I'm kicking the door like we're fighting in there. You know, people thought we were in there fighting. <laughs> and all these press guys are all standing with the cameras looking, thinking they're going to get the scoop of the century. And he's laughing like hell. And we sat down and I said, we were going to sit down to eat. And he said to me, if I give you a title fight, are you really going to try and beat? I said, let me tell you something, man. For the first time in my whole career, I will go away to camp like you clowns do. And I'll spend eight months. I mean, I'll spend eight weeks getting ready for the fight. And when you come in that ring, bring a gun because you're going to need it. And he said, two steaks, please. <laughs> uh, no, he was, I liked him a lot. He was a, he was a hell of a fighter. He was a great athlete, period. But a good person as well. I felt bad for him when he got Parkinson's because what he really had was his training camp up in Pennsylvania was next to a mink farm. And they used to spray the mink farm for, you know, rodent shit all the time. And he ingested that in his lungs doing road work and stuff around there. And that was what caused his body to break down. Everybody thought wow. he had he got hit too many times in the body and he developed Parkinson's disease. But So he used to sit and, you know, people would, people would, you know, press guys and everybody would be around them asking them questions like, bam, 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 you know, one after the other. And he couldn't, his, his motor syndromes were, were bad because he, so he'd pretend like he was asleep. And they said he was sicker than he was because he'd nod off all the time. But he was in the gym training every day. He was. Wow. He yeah, that's not far from where, that's not far from where we're, well, I'm in Tallahassee now, but that's not far from where we were. Where Billy you live is out now. in Pennsylvania? Yeah. Uh, you're talking about Deer Lake, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're from, well, I'm from Reading. You're from Reading, Pennsylvania? I boxed in Reading. Yeah. Oh, yeah? I, I boxed in Reading. My very first professional fight was in Reading. It was an outdoor stadium. I knocked a guy out in uh, 79 seconds of the first <laughs> round. At the, the, uh, the Reading Philly Stadium. Yeah. They yeah, packed cool. the joint. That was the first, fight, that first pro fight I ever had. It was a four-round fight. And I, <laughs> the guy, the guy's name was John Pinto. And I and I cracked him. I split his head from his from his eyebrow to over his ear. And, and when we came back in the dressing room, I heard him screaming and arguing with people saying, you told me this guy couldn't fight. And, the, and, the, and I was going to carry him for, for four rounds. But, you know, and, and you said he couldn't really fight. He said, look what he did to my... <laughs> oh jeez yeah wow. ready I, I i boxed in scranton okay times russell buffalino was a good friend of mine really yeah i knew russell quite well well that leads me 
to my next uh, fan question here. John Henderson would like to know how much of your book family legacy did you pull from your own life? Much of the story reads like the Godfather. And I was wondering if Puzo had heard of you and your eventful life and based Michael Corleone on Jack on you. I, when I wrote my book, I, uh, uh, Albert Anastasia was my father. If you don't know who that was, Albert was head of Murder, Inc. And it was the Anastasia family before the Gambino family. Gambino was my father's underboss. And my father controlled all the docks in America. And he was not into the drug business. When you, when they did the Godfather in Brando, they went in to talk about the drug business. And he said he had to decline because if we touch it, our children will touch it. And it'll be the downfall of the family. Well, my father said that. And so they killed Albert. And Frank Costello didn't want the drug business because he was the political guy who, his book, he had the, the whole, the political system in, in a great, he had a book of, of who's who. And uh, he said that if we get involved in this business, we're going to lose all our political contacts because it's a filthy business. And they don't mind us with gambling and loan sharking and stuff, but, but uh, drugs is not, is going to be a no-no. So they shot him and they, they almost killed him, but they didn't. And he, re, he just retired after that. And there were a few other people that weren't in too keen on the drug business, but Genovese had talked everybody into how much money was involved and everything else. And, and they forgot how to make money. I mean, by the time they got to Gotti, I mean, they were more into chicks and, and, and drugs than they were in the way that they made money through the unions and everything else. There's a lot of things changed, you know. After Albert died, a lot of stuff changed. So I waited for a few people to die because uh, Meyer Lansky, I was very close to. Costello, I was close to. I was one of probably, I guess I'm one of three people alive today that went across the country and I met every one of the Dons. I knew Giancana. I knew... Uh, the real Don out there was uh, was a super individual. What a good guy he was, boy! From Chicago, and um, and I went to Milwaukee, and I, and I met a lot of people when I was younger. Meyer used to send me places so I would learn, and um, you know, I, I watched a lot of changes happen and a lot of things that turned around and stuff. And, you see, you talk about the election they just had and, and all the problems with the voting. And, and when Jack Kennedy was running for president, his father was under thumb to Chicago from the time from Prohibition era. And Gene Connor was running Chicago. Well, he was the front for another guy. He made a deal with Joe Kennedy. Joe Kennedy, you know, uh, said, well, we've got all the electoral votes and all. So he went out to California to get nominated and they were out there like a day and a half and Joe Kennedy called Chicago and said, we got a problem. We don't have the electoral votes we thought we were going to get. So Gene Khan made some phone calls and the next day, Illinois and two other states turned Democrat. And then they were at the third day and and he called them again. He said, you know, we're, we're still short. And there's only one state that could really put us across the finish line, has enough electoral votes in that one state. And it was the state of West Virginia because of all the coal mines and everything. 
was a small state, but they had a lot of electoral votes because of the revenue that was earned in the state. So Giancana talked to the Cellini family who controlled the casinos or a lot of casinos in West Virginia, illegal casinos, of course. And um, they wound up excusing some debt and uh, people West Virginia raised their hand and Jack Kennedy got nominated to president for presidency of the United States. And then when the election, general election came up, he was running against Nixon. It was very close, neck and neck, neck and neck, neck and neck. And there were counties in Illinois <laughs> that people voted 20 times who were dead. You understand? Yeah. They're talking about the vote fraud that went on with, with Trump. When Kennedy was running for president, I mean, Illinois and Florida and another state, they had people that were dead that voted 20 times. <laughs> and Kennedy won the won the presidency, you know. Crazy. And uh, everyone uh, definitely check out Jack's book, Family Legacy. We're going to get into you're, you're making a mini series about that. We have one more fan question here uh, from Mike Zellner. What was so the atmosphere? answer to your other question? 80% of the book is, is real. 80%? Is 80%. Well, it was, I was going to write it nonfiction. And the FBI said, ain't happening. We will not let you publicize that book nonfiction. So I, I had a guy from NSA who used to watch my back. And he put a, a meeting together in Hawaii with NSA and FBI and CIA. And we had this huge discussion about what I was going to say in this book. They said, well, you know what? We're, we're just not going to let you, if you don't change this to fiction or something. So I, we made a deal. And I said to them, you know, I had this get out of jail free card. And it's a piece of tape about Jagger Hoover. <laughs> something you want, that you don't want to go. And I could just put it vile and it would go veer all the way over. And they said, oh, no, no, you can't do You cannot do that. Can't do that. And I said, well, so we made a deal that uh, I could take a little bit of fiction and put it in the book and the rest would be true. And I said, as long as you confuse people a little bit, it's okay. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so we did. So that. I heard you mention earlier that you didn't want to go on Carson because he would bring bring up parts of, of your life about your father and things like that. Why have you decided to come out now and talk about it? Well, because it, I, I, you know I, it's time that the truth is told. There's been so many lies told about what the families were involved in, how the families evolved, and and the Kennedy assassination is a total lie. You know, what the, the whole Warren Commission is bullshit. The, the whole thing of how he died and why he died has never been told the truth. I mean, he was shot three times that day. And they sold everybody on this one bullet theory with Oswald. And Oswald was a patsy from day one. You ever, I don't know, you guys are too young to remember. There used to be a television series called I Led Three Lives. And it was about a, a, a spy in the military. And Oswald actually worked for the military. There were a lot of gay bars in in uh, New Orleans and in and, and Dallas, Texas. And he would dress as a, he was like a, a uniform in, in an officer's uniform. And these officers would be in these gay bars, which was taboo in those days. Not a good idea. And he would have conversations with them, but he was wired. You understand? Mm -hmm. They were blackmailing people. And he thought he was going to rise up to this big time deal, which, of course, was never going to happen. 
and his mother was uh, mistress for a guy in uh, New Orleans who was a hitman for Carlos Marcellus. There was a guy named, there was George de Mornchild and his partner were, who went to Dallas, Texas. They were white Russians that came into New York and Meyer financed them and sent them to Dallas and they were in the garment district and all. And they went down and set up shop down in Dallas, Texas. And George de Mornchild was dating Jackie Kennedy's aunt. Jackie Kennedy used to call him Uncle George. And he taught Oswald Russian, and uh, they arranged for him to marry a KGB guy's daughter. He went to Russia, and because he shot his mouth off so much in all the apartments that they were in, they were bugged. And he talked so much, they wound up throwing him out of Russia. And he came home, and he was a throwaway. They didn't know what to do with him. So they had used him as a patsy for this whole thing being set up in Dallas, Texas that day. He was in two places at one time. I mean, there's so many stories about Oswald that are so ridiculous. And now you get down to the actual supposedly, he supposedly shot Kennedy at this from this window. There's a prison right across the street from the Bird Building. And there are prisoners there looking straight at that window. There were two dark-complected guys and a white guy. Three guys were in the window. You're talking about a mail-order rifle, bolt action, okay? Now, I don't know if you know anything about shooting or rifles or anything of that nature, but any marksman will tell you that you're going to shoot a shot of 1,000 feet away, and you have variables. Dealey Plaza, first of all, the car is on a decline moving. You had wind that was so bad down there that the police radios couldn't be used. And you had trees and signs and people. And if you're a shooter, you have to arrest your heart for one minute because your pulse is in your finger. So you must take your heartbeat down to 60. And you're talking about a bolt-action gun that you shot three shots from in 28 seconds, forget about it. Never, ever, with any accuracy. Now, the other part of it that's bull is the fact that if Kennedy was being shot from that window, it would have been as the car came up to Dealey Plaza before it made the turn, because it would have been head on. Right there, you would have seen him, right? So when he turned down Dealey Plaza, there were 13 shots fired that day. And First shot that hit Jack Kennedy was in the throat. And that came from a cauldron that was on the side of the street, on the right-hand side of the street, which has been so, since then, cemented in. But that cauldron went from the river to the street. It was big enough for me to walk down. Yeah? I could have walked down that cauldron. Johnny Roselli was down there from Chicago. First shot hit Kennedy in the throat. You see him grab his throat, and he fall forward. Well, the first shot into the car hit Conley, and Conley fell, and then Jack fell on top of Conley in between the first two seats in front, and he got shot in his lower back that no one talked about for 10 years afterwards. And then the driver, Greer, the car slowed down to below 10%, 10, 10 miles an hour, steered over to the left, cutting off the motorcade, and 
he turned and took the last shot, and you see Kennedy go flying backwards because he hit him in the forehead, and the back of his head came out. Now, if I'm shooting it from the wind up there, and I'm shooting at the back of him, how's his head going to come out the back when we're out the front? Yeah? Right. So the back of his head comes back out, and now you see Jackie scrambling up to to get out of the car. And they said, oh, she's trying to collect his brains. That was bullshit. She thought they were going to kill her next. So she's trying, and, and the Secret Service guys had peeled away from, do you look at the Zabruder footage? The Secret Service guys had peeled away from Kennedy's car because they knew what was going to happen. And then when the shots fired, they started running back up to the car again. And the one guy ran up as Jackie was coming out and he grabbed the hold of her to take her out of the car and whispered in her ear, if you say one thing about what you just saw, we'll kill your kids. Wow. And she never opened her mouth, ever. Not one word. And, you know, so the whole thing was orchestrated. And it was orchestrated by one guy. The money was put up for by the bankers of Europe because of Joe Kennedy and the crash. And he orchestrated a short sell which led into the crash. He didn't do it originally to make the crash of 29. That's a whole story, another story about what how it happened and what Joe Kennedy did and how he arranged for the short sell to happen. And when they went back to finish it, the country had panicked and they rushed on the banks and that caused the crash. But the short sell was aimed at 28 countries in Europe because Europe was angry that after World War I, we became a war-bearing country. And we were making manufacturing war goods, taking jobs away from Europe, and Europe wasn't getting the return on their money that they put into America to start the country. And they were kind of angry. So they, this whole short sell thing was, was orchestrated. And, and one of the companies was a company that was run by Blackjack Bouvier, who was Jackie Kennedy's father. And the Rothschilds owned the company. It was the Rothschild, two of the Rothschilds and Jackie Kennedy's father that ran this company and they bankrupted. He drank himself to death and her mother never forgave Joe Kennedy. She groomed Jackie to marry Jack Kennedy. She wanted her money back. You understand? So Lee Harvey Oswald wasn't even in the building when all these shots were fired from that building. And, you know, the whole thing, the, the whole thing was media driven and, and the, and the media sold everybody a bill of goods. And a Warren Commission came out. It was done by all the guys from Yale. And it was all bullshit. And, they, you know, they, uh, and they they went to Jack Ruby. And they said to Ruby, went to see him in jail. And Ruby said, you can't talk to me here. You, wanna, you guys want to know about Chicago and everything. I said, no, we want to just talk to him. He said, well, you can't talk to me here. We get, you got to move me out of this prison. And he died. of They shot him up with cancer. And he died a couple months in jail. He didn't live very long. He used to have needles from Tulane University from cancer, cancer research. They shot guys up in jail, killed them. Jesus. Nobody ever talks about that either. But Jesus, Jack. Drop some heavy knowledge there on us. <laughs> well, if you wanted to say who was the one person responsible for Jack Kennedy's death, it was his father. His father had so many enemies and so much animosity against him. And he would rather, Jack Kennedy was not going to live out his presidency. He was suffering from Addison's disease, which is deterioration 
of the spinal canal. They shot him up every day for pain. He had syphilis and he had two other diseases. He was he was dying. And his father would rather see him die the way he died than leave a mark of medical default on the family. And you could say, well, that's pretty cold, man. But look what he did to his daughter. His daughter suffered from ADD. He lobotomized her. She sat in an institution all her life looking out a window. You know what I mean? Joe wasn't the nicest guy in the world. And all that comes out. Every 10 years, more stuff comes out, you know. But the, when you see Oswald, I'm sure you've seen when here's Oswald, the guy shoots the president of the United States. Yeah. There was not one recording of any one of the interviews of him. There's nothing written down of any of the interviews. And when he's being brought out into the garage where Ruby was with all these people and Ruby's there with a gun, how did he ever get in there with a gun? And the guy that was standing next to Oswald, you watched him step away from him because he saw Ruby coming and knew that they were going to kill him. So they killed Oswald right there on the spot. End of story. For the media. You understand? Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. My connection is not the best. I'm not sure if you guys can hear me. Oh, hear you. hear you. You're good. You can hear me? Yeah. yeah, just stop drinking that tequila. Right. You'll be all right. So, Jack, we're all, uh, maybe you could tell us this. Do you know where Jimmy Hoffa is buried? I do. But that's that's another story altogether. Jimmy was a good guy. I like Jimmy a lot. Jimmy was Jimmy was a man's man. Jimmy Hoffa would never ask you to do what he couldn't do himself. And when they put him away, they, they accused him of stealing $8,000 from the pension fund. There was no pension fund until Hoffa. You understand? Hoffa created the Teamsters. The Kennedys wanted him out of the way because he controlled a lot of votes in the country. And Jimmy was, uh, so they, they, they put up this thing about him stealing $8,000 from the pension fund. And he thought he was going to go to jail for 30 days or something. And they wound up keeping him a couple of years because he backed the wrong president. But when he was coming, when they were going to let him out, he had to sign a bunch of documents stating that he wouldn't touch the union. He'd stay away from it for a while because the government was already in the door. They had Fitzsimmons by the Gullions. Fitzsimmons was a weak guy. And what they did to Fitzsimmons was a car right next to his son was blown up and it scared him to death. So he, boom, he fell right in line. He was lending, putting loans out for them and all this other stuff. And when Jimmy got out, he went right to his office and he told Fitzsimmons, get out of my chair and get out of my office. And he said, Jimmy, you can't be here. You just signed agreements that you would not come near the union for X amount of time. And he said, I'm taking my union back. It's mine. Get out of my office. Then he made a phone call to New York. And uh, he got into an argument over, uh, you know, he said that they said, Jimmy, just calm down. Everything will work out. Just give us the time to sort it out. I don't want to hear that. I, this is my union. I want it back. And I want it back right now. They said, bop, 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 bop. And he started talking about, well, when you wanted money, we lend it to you. But every one of those loans was paid back. He put up $25 million for Caesar's Palace. That was out of the pension fund. But that, everything was paid back. And then he said the wrong thing. 
because they kept telling Jimmy, you're on the phone, you know, I don't want to hear that. I'll go to the newspapers. And they hung the phone up, and that was the end of Jimmy Hop. Wow. Crazy, Jack. You know, a lot of stuff, and a lot of this stuff is in your book, Family Legacy, that everyone can find on Amazon. We do have one more fan question here about Dragnet. Mike Zellner would like to know, what was the atmosphere on the Dragnet set like, and uh, how also he has, uh, how often are you mistaken for Richard Keel? (laughs) The... uh... People think I did the Bond movie. They, they make a comparison. Richard's like seven foot one he was, you know, and he really suffered from acromegalia bad, worse than I did. I had mine cured at Boston. When I, like I said, when I went out to fight Norton, the guy told me you have acromegalia. And I said, and he made me, he said, either go get a test done at Scripps or we're pulling your boxing license. So I went and they told me, boom, you're pumping out this much hormone and you got to get this fixed. So I wound up going to Boston Mass General and getting, they had a thing up there called the Cyclotron Proton. And a doctor who was so far ahead in in, in medical history about tumors of the pituitary. And they hit mine, boom, first time out, wow, it knocked it out, which was kind of cool. And show you how crazy I was. I had that done and I checked out of the hospital because they made an agreement to fight a guy in Baltimore, Maryland. So I, I checked out of the hospital, went to Philly, trained one day, and then went down to Fort Morrow. It was nuts. <laughs> and, and anyway, I had scabs in my head still from where they had bolted me to the machine. But that's another thing. You were asking me, what would you just ask me? Uh, what was the atmosphere like on Dragnet? Oh, it, Dragnet was great. We had a lot of fun doing Dragnet. I mean, Danny Aykroyd, you could watch Dragnet 50 times, and you still wouldn't get all the one-liners that Aykroyd threw out. It was, I mean, we just had, you got, it was Tom Hanks' first real big movie breakout, like, you know, uh, and Danny, Danny was brilliant. I mean, he, he walked around with an earpiece all the time of Jack Webb's voice in his head. You know, it was, uh, we, we had a lot of fun doing it. It was, it was a fun movie. They were great guys to work with, actually. Well, uh, your fan Kyle Patton says that your character Emil Muzz should have gotten an Oscar nod for that role. Oh, I was told that as well. <laughs> we had a lot of fun. Yeah, I did. I did some pretty good scenes in there with with Emil. With uh, when they had me they, in the police station, they were questioning me. It was it was a great scene. It's a great movie, Jack. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Tell everyone where they can find you and uh, what's going on. What you have coming up? You can go to familylegacythenovel.com. That's a site that uh, has stuff of me on it. We have a movie called Red River we're getting ready to do in uh, Nevada, which is a great horror picture with a neat Faust twist. It's not one of these blood and gory horror movies. It's got a great Faust twist to it. We're going to shoot that in Nevada, and uh, we're getting ready to do the miniseries of uh, Family Legacy. Got two more books that are going to come out, one right after the other. We're going to one, then six months later, the other one will come out, so that when we get done the mini series, it'll go into a series, and uh, it'll run. I think a long time. We got a lot of stuff to tell. <laughs> it's going to be interesting. It's going to be a it's going to be a lot of fun. So we're doing that, and we're building a studio in Nevada, building this huge, huge studio over in Nevada. 
which is going to change the industry, putting a, a 4 million square foot studio in, which for the very first time will have everything in the industry from movies to TV to streaming to music to video games. Everything will be under one roof for the first time in the history of the industry. And we're putting a smart city next to it that will house 30,000 people, all employees of the studio, but they only have to go 15 minutes to work instead of driving hours each way every day. It's going to revolutionize the industry, which is good. You know, something that should have been done a long time ago. Sounds amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. We've been doing putting this together for several years. And uh, we were going to build it in uh, in Long Beach back in – we had a, we put a lot of work into it back in 2008 when the financial world fell apart. I mean, we had all the money. We were all ready to go, and boom. You know, the whole bottom fell out of the financial world. So it winds up pretty bad. We got a greater, better deal in Nevada, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be very good for the industry. We're looking very forward cool. to it. Yeah. Something to keep me out of trouble, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>